Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and for any new listeners, every week I dive into the Boss Archive of talks and discussions to share some great advice and stories from the world's best founders and leaders. This week we look at Metrics That Matter with Matt Lerner. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Choosing the wrong metrics can lead to the wrong strategy, or worse, no strategy at all. In this talk from Boss USA Online, Matt Lerner, founder of Startup Core Strengths, shares some of the lessons he's learned in growing companies, large and small, that will help you choose the right metrics to target in your organization. Happy listening. Hello, everyone. Uh, the first thing you want to do is grab a sheet of paper and fold it in three like you're going to stick it into an envelope and, and mail it somewhere. Um, yeah. And before I introduce myself, I'm going to tell you a story, a war story about a time when I worked at PayPal in 2009. Annual planning, and my boss came to me uh, the VP and said, Matt, you need to come up with, can you come up with the, the way to make as much profit as possible in calendar year 2009? We need to generate free cash flow. That was the instructions I got. And it's kind of funny because free cash flow or EBITDA, that's what the CEO is accountable to the board of directors for. I wasn't the CEO. I was solidly four or five levels below the CEO in the company. So there were four or five layers of very well-paid genius between me and the board of directors. And the best thing they could come up with was, can you go make us some money? Like that was the, the start and the end of the strategy. It was the best they could come up with. <laughs> I'd expect a little more. Anyways, so I, I was in a marketing function, running marketing teams. I didn't have any product resources. And when you onboard, you know, more customers at, at PayPal, it takes a while for them to ramp up to generate revenue. So it doesn't really pay off in a year. So I ended up doing a price increase. We made some changes uh, down in the fee table, stuff that you know most people wouldn't notice, wouldn't cause any one customer a lot of pain, but altogether ended up generating an extra $30 million per year in profit for the company. Um, so I was feeling pretty good about myself, right? 30 million times, we were selling at about 40 times earnings, so that's about 1.2 billion in shareholder value created. But uh, for those of you who are not uh, students of the payment industry and its illustrious past, you may not know, but 2009 was actually a very momentous year in payment processing. So does anyone recognize these, these kids? I guess I'm not in the chat, but maybe I will turn on the chat. Suspense is killing me. Yeah, it's the Collison brothers. And they're like, like 16 and 19, I think, in this picture. And they founded Stripe. Stripe, which is now worth $30 billion. And that's $30 billion of serving customers who would have otherwise used PayPal. And then this guy here, I, I'm sure you rec recognize, uh, this is Jack Dorsey. And he founded Square, again, like going after PayPal customers. And I knew right away, the moment I saw this product, that it was gonna be successful. And the reason I knew it was going to be successful is because our customers were calling us every day and asking us to build this product. And I know Henry Ford said, if I asked my customers what they want, they'd say faster horses. But in this case, our customers were calling us and saying, I'm tired of typing in credit card numbers on my smartphone with my fingers all day. Can you please make 
magnetic card swipe reader that plugs into my smartphone for me. But we didn't do that because cost of goods sold, low margin, not interesting to PayPal for, you know, reasons, so financial reasons. So what PayPal did not do in 2009 was, was this $66 billion in uh, shareholder value creation because they weren't listening to their customers. And they weren't listening to their customers because of their incentive structure, because everyone in the company, at least down to my level, was thinking about free cash flow rather than thinking about what our customers wanted. So the punchline of all this is you get what you measure, right? And so metrics have this incredible power to align and focus a team, but it's a double-edged sword because if you measure the wrong thing, it goes the wrong direction. So Mark and uh, you know Mark asked me when we did this talk. By the way, you guys might already know this, but you know the the way most people run events, Mark is is a pretty special guy. To be blunt, just between us, you know, most people look at how many Twitter followers you have and how much is your speaker fee, and get a few famous people to keynote and recycle the same talks they give everywhere. And you know, Mark doesn't do that. Mark and I spent hours on the phone talking about what content I could cover. He said, you know, this audience is not marketers. You get one hour. First of all, it can't be boring. And second of all, you need to give them something, the most useful thing you can give them in one hour that will help them improve their marketing. And so I'm not going to talk about marketing all, at all. I'm just going to talk about metrics. So let me quickly introduce myself. Uh, and why do I know so much about PayPal? My name's Matt Lerner. And uh, I, was a, I worked in Silicon Valley for most of my career, two startups you never heard of. Uh, one that some of the old timers in the group may have heard of elemental software that got acquired by Macromedia. Um, and then after that, eventually I joined PayPal in uh, 2004. Worked there for 11 years, saw a lot of growth. When I left PayPal, I became a, a partner with the early stage VC fund 500 startups. And for my education, that was incredible because I went from being like a mile deep on like hawking payments to businesses to being like a mile wide. Cause I literally in, in three and a half years as a VC, I saw a thousand pitches. I saw metrics from a thousand companies and how the founders were thinking about the business and what their acquisition strategies look like and forecasts and everything. And the thing that jumped out at me was for the most part, most companies have absolutely no idea how to do marketing. And that was especially like shocking because product has grown so much in the last 20 years. You know, we've come up with lean and agile and jobs to be done. And like, there's all this incredible innovation and in thinking and marketing. It's still like the opposite of lean. It's still people making these big expensive bets on very expensive hires and cash and equity. And then they hire people and they get giant budgets and they hire agencies and they pour money into Facebook ads and rebrands and, you know, all kinds of stuff that doesn't scale and has questionable ROI. And it, like, I know there's a better way to do marketing because that's how, you know, the best tech startups in the world are doing it. So I founded Startup Core Strengths basically to teach people how to do that. And I wrote it all, my book, uh, it wasn't published by a publisher. <laughs> it's just on my website and it's free. Uh, so maybe that's a warning, uh, but you may want to check it out. But I tried to detail the whole process there for people. But the one thing we can talk about in an hour that's going to impact you immediately is metrics. So the question I'd have is like, we all know that targets, that setting goals seems to magically cause success, but how does that work mechanistically? Does anyone know or want to explain 
No, <laughs> not really. Yeah, where the attention goes, energy flows. You look where you want to go. Yeah, just like skiing or snowboarding. If you look there, you'll go there. But that's just sort of like magic. And I notice that if I start measuring things, yeah, if you write down your goals, you commit. If you measure things, you tend to hit them. You control what you measure. But these are kind of all ways of saying if you set targets, you'll hit them. But mechanistically, the way it operates on us, like some piece of it is like we work harder to reach a goal. If we see that target, we work a little harder. But the truth is, yeah, or you're afraid of being embarrassed. So it sort of motivates you. So that's a good one. Focus. If you set the right targets, actually, yeah, Ben, I mean, that's really it. So Ben in the chat says, focus, limiting options for our time, right? It's not just an incentive, but it helps us figure out how we're going to spend our time. Because working harder by itself doesn't win. It wins. It's great in sports. It's great in like learning to play the cello. It does not work in business, right? Like how many, Jason, how many employees does Jason Fried say he had? Like 50 employees, right? So he's trying to beat Microsoft with his left hand and Google with his right hand. He can't outwork Microsoft and Google, not with 57 employees. And he said he only, he likes to work 40 hour weeks, right? So the leverage is not hard work, although it's very helpful. The key is choosing to do the right work. So if any of you have ever been in really successful businesses, and you'll know, if you look back in hindsight, it's obvious that 90% of your growth in customer acquisition came from like five things you did. At PayPal, it was eBay and web developers and shopping carts and inbound and outbound sales. That was it. Is that all we did? No, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars on all this marketing stuff that didn't work. But ultimately, all of our like real legitimate growth came from like 10% of the work. So for you, if you don't have all these resources of this giant corporate, or even if you do, the goal is to find the right 10% as fast as possible. So that means that good metrics at each level in your company help people make better decisions about which work they should do every day. Because strategy is like what your company is gonna do, but really strategy is what each person decides to do when they come in every morning and get to their desk, right? They're gonna make decisions. And so you need them to make really good decisions. So the first thing I'll say about choosing good metrics, and this is like, I like how Rich Marinoff, cause he's looked at so many companies, he talks about like all the things you do wrong. So I'm gonna do that too. Like the big mistake, and this was the mistake PayPal was making in 2009, is they were focused on profit as their main metric. And that's a great thing to be accountable to the board for, but at some point, Below the board level, you then need to sort of figure out what are your trade-offs to get there. So if you tell product and marketing, smart, ambitious product and marketing people, generate revenue or profit in the first instance, they're going to come up with all kinds of ideas that potentially degrade the value delivery to customers. You know, they're orthogonal to or degrade your customer experience. Things like increasing pricing or, you know, bundling and trying to increase average order size or making it hard to cancel your subscription. And, and that's fine if you just need to like, if you're in a private equity fund and you just wanna flip something for a quick profit. But fundamentally, long-term, if you're like trying to find product market fit, if you're trying to build a unicorn, if you're trying to be the next Stripe or Uber, the only way to really get product market fit is to just absolutely nail value delivery. And speaking of um, product market fit, I will have a section at the end where I split out metrics 
you should think about if you're pre or post product market fit, because I know that's a question that people have been asking. So what you want to charge these people with in the first instance is drive customer value. And if you can do that, honestly, it's not that hard to make revenue. Like SaaS is not a super complicated business model. Uh, it's pretty high margin. So in, like when I do workshops with CFOs in the room, usually they're the ones who are nodding most vigorously. The CFOs are like, no product manager, you don't worry about making money, you worry about making happy customers and then money will happen. So that brings us to the next question. How do you measure customer value? I mean, for all its flaws, the nice thing about profits is assuming you're not running Enron, it's fairly straightforward to measure money, right? But value delivered, a little trickier. So we're gonna to go to our friend, Bob, Bob Mesta, right? You remember your customers are trying to make progress in their lives and they're hitting a moment of struggle. And that's where you come in and they hire your product to do a job to help them make progress in their lives. So if you're helping them make progress in their lives, you're delivering value. So then as you're setting your metrics, you need to ask yourself what measurable, and we'll go through this in detail. I'm just going to lay out the thinking first. What measurable customer behavior is the closest proxy for that value delivery? Then you want to know, so think about it as like, if my customers absolutely love my product or service, how would they naturally behave? What would they do? What, what does a happy customer look like? What percentage of my customers are behaving like that? Track it in cohorts and improve it over time. So at a high level summary, that's tracking value delivery. Now, let's actually jump in and start to apply this to your business with this piece of paper. So I said fold it in three. Uh, we're gonna start with the North Star metric and that's basically the number, and I'll go through, we'll work on your North Star metrics in detail, but that's like, you know, the, the sin qua non, the, the main number that's gonna govern if you're delivering value to your customers, but it's usually pretty late in the funnel. So you can't usually move it directly. So you're gonna figure out what are all the things you could do to move the North Star metric in the right direction and then narrow down on like one to three of these that are rate limiting steps. But most important area for you to focus in the next three months. And we'll talk about how to find that. And then you're gonna also have these things, if any of you know Andy Young, he coined this term, nuance metrics. And these are numbers that it's important to watch, but you don't want to optimize. And we'll talk about those in more detail too. So let's start with our North Star metrics. Um, this should be a number which basically increments when you deliver value to your customer and therefore your company is receiving value in a natural way where customers and company are behaving as expected. It should be a simple, memorable number for the whole company. So don't put all these like within 30 days and assuming they did this and on that plan, just like, you know, seven, following seven people in their first seven days on the product or whatever. So something simple and memorable that represents the full funnel, including both new and engaged and churned users. This North Star metric, it's called the North Star because it doesn't move even though the earth is turning around it. Uh, Amazon has had the same, for their e-commerce business, the same North Star metric since 1997. So if you're changing this number a lot, you probably need to get a little clearer on who your customer is and how your business works. And then here's the last part is the key. <clears throat> and this is how you bring these numbers to life. Everyone in your company should be able to connect their work to this North Star metric. So you should literally be able to go through the company and each manager have a conversation with their, each of their team members and say, once you know what the North Star metric is, how does your work impact that number? What's the work you do every day and how does that impact the number? So we'll run through an example and I'm picking on Balsamic because uh, they were kind enough to sponsor 
program and uh, they've got a fairly straightforward business model from what I can tell. I've not talked to them about this. I haven't discussed this with them. Uh, I don't know them. Um, so hopefully this isn't too far off the mark. But if I were king of balsamic, and this is a, a tool for creating wireframes in case you've not used it, a SaaS tool. You know, obviously I'm accountable to my investors or my owners or whoever for monthly recurring revenue. And that's a function of the number of paying subscribers times the average plan cost. Because they have three plans, uh, 949 and 199. Well, the number of subscribers is going to be driven by weekly active users, which is retained from last week plus new. And then, you know, there are some people who lapsed, but they're still subscribers, but they're not using the product. And then the new actives is going to be people, well, start from the bottom, right? Some traffic comes in, they create a trial account, they make their first wireframe. Then maybe they make more wireframes and start to share it and play with the product a bit more. And then at some point they love it. So they convert or they time out. So they convert to a paid plan. And then you've got like a new paying active user. So this is kind of roughly how I think their business works. So where would you put your, and I'll open the chat so I can see what you're saying, but where would you put your North star if you were the good people from Balsamic? Amazon's North Star metric, I will cover that later. It's not 725 and <laughs> Weekly actives, make more wireframes, number of wireframes made, make first wireframe. Why everyone's saying the same thing? Did they already tell you guys this? All right. So making a wireframe may be value delivered. Most people make wireframes to share them with people. So it might be a sharing event. Nope, we're just smart. Okay. But remember, you want something that encompasses the whole funnel. So I would probably put it, you know, a number of wireframes made, you could do it around events or you could do it around users. But I think either it's going to be one of those and you can sort of build the funnel either way. In this case, I would go with weekly actives because it's a subscription retention business. And the total number of wireframes, you know, might be just get people who make more wireframes, but the pricing doesn't really align exactly with the number of wireframes you make. So I'd want to know there's lots of people who are creating lots of wireframes, but you could go either way. But the point is this is the right altitude. Cause if you go any higher, then you've got like average plan costs, you got some financial metrics. And if you go any lower, then you're kind of ignoring your back book of business and retention. So. There's, look, there, there isn't like necessarily a clear right and wrong on this, but I think it's either going to be around wireframes or users. It just shouldn't be too much higher or lower. So think about the question I'll have for you on the next slide is what is your North Star metric? And I'm just going to put up, um, and Amazon's is repeat transactions or repeat customers. Um, I don't know what Snapchat's is. So if you guys could um, just write down what you think is your North Star metric. No breakout rooms or anything. You can discuss them later. And also any questions about the definition of a North Star metric. Just uh, ask me or put them in the chat. I mean, for real with um, Snapchat, it's, you know, probably like any social media, it's probably daily active users. So 
the uh, uh, big point is that every team should be able to understand how their work impacts that metric. And if it's high enough, like the weekly active users, how would uh, a, a team that develops some parts of the system would understand the influence? Understand the difference? Uh, the, the impact, like, yeah, we did something and, and the number went up or it didn't, or it went down. Is it because of what we did or because other teams did like how? Yeah. So you're going to need some metrics in between. That's a perfect segue. You'll need some metrics in between the North star metric in each person in the organization. Now I'm going to talk this through for marketing, uh, cause I know the most about marketing. Um, hopefully, um, you can also find ways and tell me if there are ways that you would apply this, you know, through engineering. I think operations and customer service tend to work pretty well as well. So your North Star, remember, is simply memorable for the whole company, represents the whole funnel, doesn't change, and everyone should be able to explain to you, even if they can't measure it. You know, an engineer should be able to say, you know, I make this part of the product better. I know customers like using that part of the product. Therefore, you know, or the person who works on like the share functionality in Balsamic should know that sharing your wireframe is a really important part of the workflow and they want to make that easy for people. So, all right. So then the things that connect your work to that North Star metric are your key drivers. Now the key drivers should represent controllable customer behaviors and you don't want too many. There's, you're going to think of like, you remember the balsamic chart, right? There was like a huge list of possible key drivers, <coughs> excuse me, but you really only at any given time, assuming you don't have a gazillion employees, want to focus on a few of them. Now your North Star metric is usually going to be like a total number, like daily active users or, you know, number of querying teams per week. And you're going to want that absolute number to go up. Key drivers are often a ratio. What percent of people who signed up for a free trial actually created their first wireframe? What percent of people who visited the site registered for a free trial? Um, and then I like to just have each team revisit the key driver focus every three months. Uh, I think Jason Fried would do it every six weeks. I should stop referencing actually Hay and Basecamp because they're literally the exception to every rule. I think that the takeaway there is if your company could be run by DHH and Jason Fried, then just let them run it and don't worry about it. But for the rest of us, um, Anyways, the important point in the slide though is that every one of these key drivers should have a person's name next to it. And that is not the CEO's name. That's someone else in the organization. And in the Valley, we would have referred to that as having one throat to choke. But a polite way to say it would be a single point of accountability. So PayPal's um, North Star metric on their good days when they're behaving themselves was total payment volume. And the two main levers were ubiquity and preference. So be everywhere that a transaction's happening and make sure that consumers choose you every time they have the opportunity. And now you can imagine the levers if you wanna be everywhere, you're selling to all the e-commerce sites and trying to be on the shopping cart platforms. And you can imagine some of the levers under that. Amazon from the 1997 <laughs> shareholder letter from Jeff Bezos, repeat purchases. The levers are price selection and convenience. And you can see, right? Amazon's pretty ruthless about this focus, right? What do their delivery trucks look like? They look like people's cars full of stuff, full of boxes. What does the website look like? It looks like dog shit. They don't care, right? If it's not price selection, convenience is not a priority at Amazon, right? Facebook daily active users. 
and they do it across the universe and then by product under that. And then that's going to be how many people are signing up and how, how many of them are using it daily active and how can we get them back in there? And then what brings them back in are these invites and follows and post count and things like that. So as you're then, you're going to map out your, your key drivers and the main ones. But then as you're thinking about it, keep asking yourself, what's the rate limiting step? Now, this is an idea from operations management. If anyone ever had the pleasure of reading, you know, Eliyahu Goldratt, Theory of Constraints. The idea here is that in any system, um, the throughput is going to be governed by the narrowest point in the system, the bottleneck. And if you apply resources to that bottleneck, it makes everything else go better and faster. And if you apply resources anywhere else, then you're wasting them. resources, you're pushing string. So the way to think about finding your rate limiting step is just to start asking yourself, okay, if our retention is terrible, there's probably not a point in spending too much money acquiring more customers, right? Or our retention's really good, but, and our conversion rate on our website's really good, but we don't have a lot of traffic. Okay, then maybe your rate limiting step is traffic. Well, most of the people who come to our site bounce and don't sign up for a trial then maybe your rate limiting steps, your conversion rate. So have this conversation with your leadership team, look at your metrics. So write down what you think are your most important key drivers now, but then go back and think about your rate limiting step. Now I'm gonna pause, answer questions and let you do that. And then I'm gonna talk specifically about retention metrics, because that's kind of a tricky animal that I think a lot of us deal with, judging by the polls. So any questions? All right, hey, write down some uh, key drivers. I think there was a question from Ray there. Go for it, Ray. I, I did have a question and I wanted to, teasing, driving down your balsamic example of which is the, uh, the, the North Star metric. Mm -hmm. um, it, seems like the value delivery metric is much more about the use of the wireframes, but then you are pushing back on that a little bit with what actually is driving the bottom line of the business, which is not the same as value delivery metric. So I was wondering where, what thoughts you had on how to be thinking about the intersect between these two or whether it should be more focused on value metric or whether there should be a bigger accounting for how it drives the economics of the business. Um, I guess it, maybe it's splitting hairs, but I think it's still a value delivery metric. It's just how many people are you delivering value to rather than, you know, how much value are you delivering to each person? It creates a different incentive structure that is more aligned with the business, which is fine, but ultimately you can't fake it, right? You've got to get more value to more people. Now, still the people within your base who create more wireframes are going to be on a bigger plan. They're going to be paying a bit more. So the incentives are aligned that way as well. Um, but in this case, you know, I'm assuming that they're looking at the number of customers is their kind of main growth driver. Now at PayPal, it was the opposite of that. Like a big PayPal customer was literally worth 10,000 times more than a small PayPal customer. So, <laughs> we, you know, we were way more interested in getting, you know, large customers on average than number of customers on the seller side. 
Okay, if I could just do a very quick follow-up then. Using the PayPal example, if they were overly financial and you had the ability to transport back 11 years in time and be in front of the board, um, what would you tell them they should be driving their North Star to be down to from a value point of view if they were too far up on the uh, financial aspect before? Well, I think um, you know, the, the North Star metric they were behaving well was um, you know, total payment volume, which is how much transaction volumes were going through this. And of course, PayPal makes most of their money as a percentage of the transaction volume. So uh, customer and PayPal incentives are pretty well aligned there. I mean, if you're interested in the minutia of it, the reason they got so wrapped around the axle with profit margins is they were owned by eBay. And eBay was an insanely high margin business. And as PayPal's revenue increased and PayPal had like processing costs and fraud losses, PayPal had lower margins. And so overall it was hurting the, you know, the, the top line margin number. Um, and instead of preparing, you know, shareholders expectations that were taking growth at the expense of margin, uh, they decided to, you know, focus mostly on slower growth and higher margin products. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> All right. And even, yeah, John, your point about margins can be a dangerous metric. Most of the great sort of unicorn startups these days are getting their valuations off the back of top line revenue growth rates rather than gross margins. People don't worry too much. They're like HubSpot could become profitable if they wanted to. It's a SaaS business. They'd rather see top line growth. All right. So let's talk about retention because that's a tricky one. Um, and in the poll I did in Slack, it seemed like a lot of people on this call have got retention businesses. So the first thing is, I think, as a VC, when I was an investor, everyone would talk about your 30-day retention rate, your 90-day retention rate, and that actually really doesn't matter. If you look at PayPal's 90-day retention rate, without getting too much confidential data, if you look at all the business accounts who sign up, all the people who sign up for a PayPal business account, after 90 days, less than 5% of them are transacting. If you went to an investor and said, I have 95% three-month churn, you'd have a real hard time getting a second meeting with that investor. Clearly, PayPal's business is doing okay. And that's because it's not a question of the number of customers, it's you know, the amount of transaction volume and a small number of really big customers make most of their revenue. But the point is, the absolute numbers themselves don't matter hugely. What matters is the shape of the curve. So if you have a bunch of cohorts and they all start as active and all go to zero, these are each you know, activation, number of actives in a cohort. And by the way, I got this illustration from Brian Balfour, uh, just to give credit where I've stolen it from. Now, if you have the same business, only your activation rates or your retention drops off, but flattens out. So the retention curves flatten, then your business looks like this. So the super important point here is don't get super wrapped around the axle about the overall retention rate until you flatten out the curve. Okay, now, how do you flatten out the curve? How do you improve retention? Well, we could obviously spend the whole rest of the conference talking about retention tactics, and I'm not going to, but I'll keep it around the topic of metrics, because this is a really tricky metric. But let's think it through from first principles again, okay? So I'm a designer, product manager, and I'm working on a small team, and I want to make some wireframes. And I, someone tells me Balsamic's good for that. So I go on and I create an account, I try it, and I start making wireframes. So remember jobs to be done here. I've got a job I'm trying to hire Balsamic for. 
I get to their homepage. Someone told me it's good for this. I get to their homepage. I think it's good for this. Is that enough to cause retention? No, because I haven't actually tried it yet, right? So I go in, I log in, I confirm my email address. Will that cause retention? No. Okay, I create my first wireframe and it's easy. Will that cause retention? Maybe. Okay, what if I create five wireframes in the first seven days and I share them with 11 people? Okay, clearly I'm getting value out of Balsamic. So my likelihood to retain is pretty high. And if I churn, it's probably not because I found a better wireframe tool. It's probably because I stopped needing to share wireframes or lost my job or something. So what I'd say is, how would people naturally behave if they loved your product? And then what early life behavior pattern predicts retention? So how far in your funnel do they have to get before they feel the magic and realize your product is going to do the thing they hired you to do. So figure out what that threshold is and you can do, I don't know the name of the statistical analysis. If someone does put it in the chat, but basically you want to take each sort of behavioral threshold point, and then say, does that predict retention? So Netflix did this. They said, of all the people who create Netflix accounts, I'm making up the numbers, but directionally accurate. Of all the people who create a Netflix account in the early days, 40% of them were active after 90 days. Of all the people who created a Netflix account and added three titles to their queue, 80% were active. So they did figure this much out. This is public. That unless, it doesn't matter if you create an account until you add at least three titles to your, your Netflix queue. That's the aha moment when you've got value. So then they focused all their efforts on getting people to add titles to their queue. So figure out for you, what is that, you know, for Twitter and Facebook, you know, it was like following 10 people in seven days or having seven friends in three days, things like that. So what is your, like, what do you think is your habituation threshold? And then you just validate that analytically and say, okay, in past cohorts, people who have had this sequence of behaviors, what is their retention rate compared to regular signups? Yeah, it, it might be a regression analysis. Okay, good to know, thank you. So that's where you start with metrics. Now the neat thing is once you've done that, you can go back to your investors and you can say, here's our total MRR. Here's how much of our MRR is happy MRR from customers who we know are habituated and likely to stick around. Here's how much of our MRR is from brand new customers we've just signed up. And here's how much of our MRR is from lapsed customers who you know, haven't been using the product, but they're still paying for it. So that's at risk MRR, right? And that's a great perspective to have on your business. So Tim, yeah, the point of these graphs, this is a, a theoretical exercise. These are made up numbers, but I'm just saying, if all your customers churn or almost all your customers churn, it's, it's very hard to grow a business. If some of your customers stick around, even five or 10% of them, like we had at PayPal, it looks very different. And the other thing at PayPal is the merchants who did stick around and keep using PayPal, they would actually grow. So the, on a revenue basis, the cohorts would actually become more valuable. It was kind of inverse churn. It was like a J-shaped curve. So, you know, for Balsamic, I don't know, but what, where do we think their habituation threshold is? How far do you need to get in this funnel before you feel the joy? Or if someone on Balsamic wants to share that information, I won't be offended or I'll be delighted actually. <laughs> or not.
So uh, I think it's probably here. Yeah, I think making a first wireframe alone doesn't tell me, but if they're actually showing it to a designer or a customer or a boss or something, to me, that feels like it's somewhere in here. And it's probably a little more nuanced than that. You know, it's probably at least one wireframe shared with at least one person in 48 hours or something like that. And then when you want to move that metric, you can look at everything from, you know, traffic quality to onboarding experience, all sorts of stuff, you know, out of box experience, all kinds of levers to start to move that. Because it could be traffic quality, right? There might be people who just only need to make one wireframe ever. Okay, well, then maybe we need to change our marketing mix and get fewer of those people. All right. So think about if you, what are your key drivers? Uh, I think you've already started to write those down. Which one's your rate limiting step? If you've got a habituation threshold, you know, where are you going to look for that? And then at some point you'll need to make a decision whose name goes next to these metrics. So this is the end of key drivers. Before I go to nuance metrics, are there other questions about North stars or key drivers? And I'm trying to rush through this, apologize for the speed. I just, I find the questions and discussion on these things are really good. So I'm also trying to get to the uh, group, but happy to answer questions as we go. All right, so the nuance metrics, I won't spend a lot of time here. You don't need to fill these out now, but if you can think of any numbers that are like a good check on the things you're maximizing. So for example, if I'm trying to get more signups, I might want to put a check on activation rates to make sure they're good quality signups. And I might want to put a check metric on cost per acquisition to make sure we're not overpaying for them. Um, if I'm trying to change the product to make it more sticky, I might keep an eye on net promoter score to make sure we don't piss anybody off. So these are like the other numbers or, you know, maybe seasonality is a big factor in your business. So you have a nuance metric in there. So these are things that inform, these could be key drivers you're not working on or things that inform uh, movements in the North star. So as you start to track your metrics and play with them, you're just going to see there's a bunch of other numbers you need to keep an eye on, put them there. And the important thing about that list is that it's read only. The point of that is you want to keep an eye on them, but you're not trying to maximize them. And that brings you to the sort of focus and discipline because it's really hard to look at a number and know that it could be better, but that right now you've got another priority, a more important priority. Uh, another good nuance metric could be your traffic mix. There's a lot of times like paid versus referral versus affiliate versus organic, they behave differently. So like what percent of your traffic is coming from paid, for example, could be an important nuance metric. All right, any questions about nuance metrics? I will jump into product market fit. Oh, live chat. Uh, Andy Richardson, backstops. I don't know what that is, I'm sorry. So, so the point they are making is, I think you made the point, right? Like we don't inadvertently um, affect another critical metric uh, just for the sake of optimizing for one particular one. So the backstop means that you're keeping a okay. health check on that other metric. So is yeah, what I'm calling a check metric. Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Should nuance metrics be assigned? Normally um, in a operating review or, or your meeting, you're gonna see them all there on the screen. Um, so everyone should be monitoring them. So the way I'd incorporate this is everyone kind of has to look at these metrics once a week or every two weeks or whatever the cadence is to see how it's going. Um, but assigning the KPIs gives you an accountability. 
By the way, a lot of people like to sort of automate pulling these numbers into a dashboard. I recommend doing it manually just because there's something really valuable to spending like 20 minutes on a Monday morning, actually a person looking through your numbers and looking through your analytics tools that causes good thinking. All right. Um, are these normally done per company or per product? It depends on the complexity of your business um, and it can be layered, right? You can have products like I'm sure Amazon has North Star metrics for AWS and their other products too. Um, but it sort of create, it, it focuses on the level at which you want to create the alignment. But ideally your North Star metric is as high and grand as possible. All right, so if you don't have product market fit, quick definition of product market fit. My favorite's from Elad Gill. If your product is broken and people are still using it, if you have high retention with a broken product, that's a clear sign you have product market fit. When people ask me, I usually say, if you're not sure, you don't have it. Um, if there's time at the end, I have a, a broken product story from PayPal that's kind of fun we might can get into, but we'll see. So if you don't have product market fit or you think you don't, basically here's how it breaks down. All right, this is your time, energy, and resources on the y-axis. And then the x-axis is like how far along you are. So if you are pre-product market fit, you're hunting for product market fit. If you have product market fit, you're blitz scaling. This is the sprint. And this might be 60-40 or it might be 90-10 or 70-30. But you're trying to maximize your current growth vectors, which could, by vectors, I'm being really vague. It could be partnerships. It could be product-driven growth. It could be a marketing channel, it could be a sales channel, like whatever axis you're growing on. And then also you wanna seek adjacent vectors that you can grow on at the same time. Now, and then like when you're a big giant company, you've got, you know, Google, and then you've got like Google Labs trying to invent new stuff, right? But we're not worried about that. But here's the thing, this is really important, because if you try to scale and you pump resources into scaling when you don't have product market fit, you're basically accelerating your burn rate, you're shortening your runway. And product market fit, the search, is a journey of indeterminate length. So you need, time is your friend. So you do not want to be doubling down on expensive things, making your code base more complex, making your interface more complex, until you find product market fit. So 100% of your focus is finding product market fit. How do you measure that? Basically, you're going to be running some kind of learning loops. Some, you've got to basically be learning Start by learning about the problem space, validating the need. And then, you know, a good product person will do build, measure, learn, and test prototypes and wireframes. A good marketer is gonna look for language market fit. Um, or a salesperson, they're gonna be just putting out proposals, propositions for non-existent products in front of people and seeing if they click buy. They're gonna start having conversations, preliminary discussions with prospects and see, does this feel easy to sell? So strength of fit metrics are things like, conversion rates, activation rates, stuff that tells you like, yeah, this is pretty easy to get people to start using this product. They're telling their friends about it, retention rates. So these are more like qualitative metrics inside your funnel to see how hard or easy it is to get people like bought into this and using it and running. And then the second metric, this is important for everyone, but critical for product market fit is a metric around the pace of learning. How many experiments are you running per week? And now it feels like that's weird. That creates this weird incentive that you're just making up random experiments just to try stuff. That's actually good. Because sometimes that random experiment that was on the bottom of everyone's list, but you can do it quickly and you got to hit your target, ends up teaching you something really valuable. 
So the second pre-PMF metric is the pace of learning. So that's product market fit. So the last thing I'm going to talk about is the process to then sort of perfuse these metrics through your organization and help everyone make better decisions about the work they do every day. Are there any sort of definitional questions around the metrics themselves first? North Star, key drivers, rate limiting step, retention threshold. All right, and how am I doing on time? Is there a checklist to validate product market fit? So, sorry, uh, for me on product market fit, there is a, there's an idea called the four fits framework, um, which basically says, you know, fit has got to be locked in in four places. First of all, you got to validate the need and you need problem solution fit, right? So first, is there like a really big, good burning need? And then second of all, does your product serve that, solve that need? Okay. Then you need sort of language market fit, which means, okay, you've got a product. Can you show some sales or marketing presentation or content to a customer and convince them this product is going to solve their problem? And as a marketing coach, so many of the companies I deal with have a great product, but they can't explain it to anyone. So people don't sign up. So getting that language market fit is the missing piece. And then the next piece you need is channels. You've got to figure out where you're going to go find those customers. Uh, whether it's, you know, through some kind of product driven referral growth or inbound or paid or whatever. And then um, the last piece is business model fit. So can you do this all in a way where you can actually monetize it? And so that money feeds back into the system and keeps the feedback loop going. Company examples where a North Star metric was not sufficient. Yeah, there's a few. I mean, Facebook's a good example because the North Star metric is all about user engagement. And obviously they're very good at selling advertising too. So they must have some metric on the advertising side, which is frankly, you know, a conflict with their North Star metric of daily active users. Because if you stuff the newsfeed full of irrelevant ads, you're going to degrade experience. And Facebook doesn't do that and somehow reconciles that and gives the great ad experience. Um, another example is Amazon, like they have more than one because they have AWS, which is a completely different business from their e-commerce business. All right. Let's talk about bringing these metrics to life. So here's how you run the process up the back of these, right? The point of this whole process is to help people at each level of your company make good decisions about which work they choose to do. And your goal is to get everyone doing the most impactful work every day. I wake up, I open my laptop. What am I going to do? That's make or break for your company. Therefore, first thing is everyone should be able to just tell you, even if they don't have metrics, here's how the work I do impacts our North Star metric. They should just understand that mentally in their heads. Don't tell them, ask them. Because when you ask someone, how does your work affect the North Star? You're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn if they understand the business or not. You're going to learn if they can make strategic decisions at their level in the organization or not. And that's super helpful. And they might know more than you do. And that would be great because then you'll learn something. Something other than the fact that you need to replace your employee. Um, so then this empowers people to make good resource allocation decisions at their level and their domain of control. So Steve Jobs had a great quote. He said, we don't hire great people and tell them what to do. We hire great people so they can tell us what to do. So here's a chance to find out if your people can make good decisions and tell you what to do. So then it becomes this conversation about what's, remember the North Star metric, what's the most important work you're doing and how's it going? 
And I think that's another place we get sidetracked. When I was at PayPal in the early days, they only hired, I think, other than me, people out of Stanford. So I was kind of the dummy Miami of Ohio person there. But all the Stanford people around me, their quarterly or their, their weekly status updates, they did like 48 things. It was like a contest to see who could have the most bullet points of things they did that week. And the truth is most of the stuff you do every week doesn't matter. So the conversation you want to have with each employee on your regular cadence is what is the most important work and how's that going? And that can be an ops review with the vice president. That can be a one-on-one, -on -one, a weekly check-in with your boss. What's the most important work you're doing? How's it going and how can I help? Because that forces a conversation about which work should we be doing and is the important work getting blocked or moving forward. Quick um, common pitfalls I see. We talked, we beat this horse to death, focusing on revenue or value delivery. Um, chasing too many metrics at once, huge problem. Analysis paralysis. So as an investor, I saw this a few times where I would invest in absolutely brilliant founders and then they'd spend six weeks debating what's their North Star metric. And the problem actually isn't a metrics problem. There's like a huge company culture problem because they spend six weeks debating everything. And what you need is people who just make decisions and closest, you know, close, done is better than perfect, let's move ahead. So if you get into analysis paralysis, that's a huge warning light in your business. You definitely need to get out of that. And that's a cultural thing, it's not just metrics. And then yeah, someone called out the local maximum. So just, you know, come up with a monthly or quarterly cadence of like zooming out and saying, hey, you know, is our thinking too focused? Should we choose a different target? Should we step back and focus less on doing and more on learning and try to come up with a better approach? Are we missing something bigger? All right, so to recap, and then I'll open it up for questions. Um, come up with a North Star metric, measures value delivery and is constant over time. Focus on one to three key drivers, especially your rate limiting step and have people align their work to those key drivers to make the North Star metric go up. Revisit that every three months. If you're a pre-product market fit, focus on learning about the product, the solution, you know, the, the need in the market, the channels, the message, proposition, the features. Focus on learning and try to iterate and learn as fast as you can. For retention, make sure you figure out where's your habituation threshold and then optimize how do you get more people across it. So weirdly, retention, solving retention actually kind of paradoxically becomes an activation problem. One person accountable for each key driver. And then your conversation with employees. Do you understand the North Star metric and how you impact that number? Works for operations, works for sales, works for product, works for everybody. Do you understand your key driver? How you move that? And then are you able to make good decisions about which work you should do based on that information? So, your homework, should you choose to accept it. Have a conversation with your leadership team. Figure out your North Star metric and your key drivers and your rate limiting step. Have these conversations with your employees. And then regular conversations. What's the most important work you're doing and how's it going? So that's all I got. I'll just leave you with <laughs> measure twice, cut once. And uh, happy to take any other questions. I don't know how much time we've got back, so or time we have left. So we got a few. We've got a five minutes or something. I guess we uh, um, we can we can tie it up. But there's again uh, another session here that 
raises more questions than it. Um, it helps helps focus a bunch of things, but uh, you know, like a lot of these things, then there's a like, oh my god, what does that mean for me? And blah, blah, blah. so um, we're going to have to get you back to uh, do a follow-up later in the year if that's all right Matt. if you understand your key drivers good question from tim burgess if you understand your key drivers why would you need it revisiting so often so you're going to have a lot of key drivers what you're going to revisit is which ones you're focusing on so given limited resources where is your bottleneck in your system where should you focus which key driver in a three-month period if you've got a pretty big team and you can deck teams against all the key drivers and your product team can keep up with that. That's good. All right. How often do you see this done wrong? Maybe not catastrophically, but slowing, creeping death. Um, sorry, Andy, do you mean people who try to apply this framework and apply it badly? Or do you mean people who are dying because they're not applying the framework? I think uh, both are good, good responses there. <laughs> I mean, most people do not apply the framework. Uh, is the bottom line. And, you know, some people get by, it just seems to work a lot better. I mean, I think if I were to just start surveying and I could, you know, founders and say, what is your company scaled up? What is your biggest hassle? A lot of them say people and, you know, people are not aligned and people don't have a sense of ownership and people aren't making good decisions. And, you know, there's all these disagreements between people and the system like this is designed to cause people to have conversations and get more aligned. So if nothing else that, you know, it's hopefully going to make the people side of the business a little bit easier. Um, in terms of like people who actually use the framework and screw it up, that's uh, these common pitfalls. And the, the real dangerous one is analysis paralysis. Uh, how do you set a North Star that isn't easily tainted or gamed? Uh, that's where you want to have your check metrics in there. So just put some numbers around that sort of track the gaming of it. Um, but the other thing, like, hopefully if your company is not that big, like you're just sort of kind of paying attention, having conversations. You guys all seem like pretty thoughtful people who stress test stuff pretty well. The right way, North Star, key drivers, strategies, OKRs. Yeah, that's it. And for your OKRs, then I'd ask your people. So this is John's questions. North Star, is this the right order? North Star, key drivers, strategies, OKRs. That is correct. And for OKRs, I would ask your people, I'd say, here's the North Star, here's the key drivers, you're in charge of blah, 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 what should your OKRs be? You tell me what work you should do. And then see what they come back to you with as a starter for 10. And then that conversation about, oh, why, I'm surprised, why did you choose this? Oh, I chose it because blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, maybe they're missing an important piece of information and they're making a bad decision. Or maybe you're make, missing an important piece of information and they've actually made a good decision. So that can be a really helpful conversation in that OKR setting. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.